Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by APT Capital Group, where Kyle and Lalita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Before we get started, please make sure to head over to our website, limitless-estates.com, and grab our free Passive Investor's Guide. Also, if you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with Kyle on our website as well. All right, now let's jump into our show. Today, we have Bruce Roulette here with us. Bruce, how's it going? I'm doing fantastic. More importantly, how are you? We are doing great. Thanks for joining us. Before we head into the interview, here's a little bit about Bruce. Bruce is the founder and the current owner of Bakerson. Bruce has a proven track record of success throughout Bakerson's 16 years in business with thousands of individual units bought, repositioned, and sold. His current focus is finding good real estate deals while his passion is serving the residents by proving them with one of their basic human needs, which is shelter. Join us at the Asset Management Virtual Summit on September 24th through October 4th. It's a 14-day content-packed event for multifamily operators and asset managers with over 1,000 attendees and over 30 amazing speakers. You will hear from experts about investor relations, maximizing revenue, building systems, KPIs, and so much more. Go to amsummit2020.com to grab your free ticket. Discover the best asset management strategies all in one place. We'll see you at the Asset Management Virtual Summit. Great stuff. We can't wait to learn more about you, Bruce. So could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Yeah, I can. So one of the questions that I, that comes up is the word Bakerson, the name, where'd that name come from? And I grew up in the bakery business and my former business partner, Jack Martin, who were still very best friends, we got together in business and both of our dads were bakers in Minneapolis and at the Woolat Bakery, which is a family business, which is still in business. And so then I said, well, I'm an SOB. I'm a son of a baker. That's where the name Bakerson came from. And our current, our current focus is what I call togethermits. You call them apartments, but the word apartment is a part or divisive, whereas the word togetherment is inclusive and it's it unifying. So we're in the apartment business, uh, repositioning assets, Phoenix and Tucson. Awesome. I never heard it uh, said that way and I really like that a lot. So talk to us about your journey from going from wholesaling 2,000 homes to now owning several apartment communities in the Tucson area. What's that progression like? Well, in, in 2002, I had uh, a few rental units, a triplex, a duplex, and a couple of houses in Phoenix. And I had hired Jack to do some of the work. And Jack and I sat down and said, you know, he said, hey, you got the right, right business, but you, you know, we got a partner on this. And I said, really? He says, yeah, I, you find the homes and I can fix them up. And then that was, so that was 2002 and October is when we formed it. So it's actually 17, moving on 18 years. I have to update my profile, but we're about almost, you know, we're in our 18th year of business. And we were finding more, I could find more deals at that time in 2002, three and four than we could possibly fix and sell. And I was introduced to wholesaling. In the first year, we wholesaled over 50 houses and 47 to one investor who I'm still in contact with today. And the wholesaling market shifted. And so we started 
flipping other properties. We flipped a motel, an office building, a mobile home park. And we started flipping multifamily anywhere from a duplex up to a couple hundred units. And we thought, well, we could do this ourselves. We could take them down. And so the transition was just getting bigger in the size of the properties, bigger price tags, but also the shift, there was a big shift in how wholesaling was getting done. And so that's some of the, part of that shift was that caused us to look at other ways to generate income. You have to always be clever and creative. And I got a little bit of ADD, so shifting around is, is really exciting for me. Okay. And what was one of those shifts that was happening in the wholesaling business that you're talking about? Okay. Our, um, in three, four, five, you know, in the run-up, our niche that we had carved out is we could find the deal, we could find the owner, we could lock up the deal, and then we would be able to bring, the, bring that to market. And even on some of the, the bank-owned properties were really quiet. The internet wasn't as near what it is today, you know, 18 years ago. So we were able to compile the information and then sell a, the, to our, sell the properties through our um, email campaign. And, and oftentimes they were sold in hours after we put them out there. We left a lot of meat on the bone. The investors could make a lot of money. But as things got automated, we, we still did the old-fashioned door knocking and ye- little yellow notes. And we, we had a good system going. But when we shifted to REOs and auction, things were getting automated. And we didn't set up those systems where people could go online and buy they could, they could follow a property online, bid online, buy online. And so the middleman was squeezed out in many ways. And we just didn't join that, that party of uh, automating everything. So because of the way we had set up, um, we did not shift with that. And I thought that we could automate that, but I didn't think wholesaling as we were doing it would last because those ones would get dried up. Uh, in Phoenix in uh, 2011, 12, 13, 14 was absolutely insane those deals aren't available now. We, we, we drive down the road and, and one in five houses were vacant in parts of Maryvale. And that doesn't exist right now. So that we, we had to change somehow. So I thought, well, let's shift to something else, a little bigger ticket. And then also I want to make a bigger impact on the area. The houses that we sold, we focused on selling to homeowners, but then that also changed. We couldn't do seller carrybacks and getting loans under 50,000 in the West Valley, bank loans were, were very difficult. So we we would create seller carrybacks and then sell the notes on the open market. Well, then that got regulated. So we, as the laws changed, as the markets changed, we changed. We went a different direction. Yep. Awesome. So tell us about your first multifamily acquisition. What was the story behind that property? All right. The first one was a, uh, a property in, in Phoenix. It was a 64 unit. And an individual had a, had a challenge with the property and he had, couldn't meet his numbers and he couldn't threaten on calling the note. And so these investors came to us and said, hey, if, can you guys come in and, and help us fund this deal? And so we said, sure, we can, we can do that. We can make an effort anyway. And so we found an, one investor who wanted to fund the whole project. And so we took it down and we were a one-third, one-third owner in the project. And it was uh, 32nd Street and Thomas. It was 64 one-bedroom units. And we turned them into, we, we took some of the one-bedrooms and we created studios. The neighboring properties, we had studios and two-bedrooms. So we got done, we had 24 two bedrooms, 21 bedrooms and 20 studios and it completely changed the demographics of the, of the property and it was really exciting turn. So that was the first one we did. And do you still have that property today? No, we sold that. All of our properties have been 18 to 36 months um, and we are shifting now to buy and hold. But at that time, because of the, the way the business was set up, we had to get the investor money back. And we had too many partners in the deal. On the, the next project we bought was really exciting, 120 unit. We had 21 days to raise over 5 million on this property. And so we got a hard money lender. 
and we got a group of investors and we, in 21 days, we closed that 120 units in Glendale. But that one was fascinating because the, the owner was, uh, the note did get called and it was, he had until February 21st to pay off the mortgage or they're going to, they're, they're going to start foreclosure. Well, he panicked and the only one making money on that was the property manager and the property manager was one of the owners. So it was kind of an interesting situation there. So we took that one down and we sold that one as well. But that one was really exciting for us because he says, hey, we can do larger properties with the right, right business plan, the right focus and the, the right data. So back then, what was your business plan? You said you're holding them for 18 to 36 months. What did that look like? What types of properties were you targeting? In Phoenix, we had a, a six unit, an eight unit, 16, 22, 64, and 120. So those are the six properties that we repositioned in Phoenix market. And it was just get in, get out in 18 to 24 months was our target on those. And all those we got out within, I believe within 18 months, where we picked them up, vacated the, the problematic residents, brought in new residents and updated the units and put it back on the market. And it's, it was a hot market. And so then as we sold those, we realized that, hey, there's, there's more to do here. And so we ended up, but the challenge we had at that time was finding deals in Phoenix. Looking back, every property we made an offer on, we could have paid asking price and, and doubled our money. It would have been really good, but we didn't know where the Phoenix market was going at that time. Our numbers, we always look at, is it a good deal today? We do not do speculative buying. It's always, is it a good deal today? And does it make sense today? And if the, if the market goes up, we win. If the market goes down, we're still pretty safe because we, we buy really conservatively. Yeah, I think you're running into that issue even today, right? Or maybe a year ago, you're sitting there saying, okay, if I'm speculative, like a lot of these people are, you can make a lot of money. But buying as is today, Phoenix is starting to make a little less sense for sure. Is there something that you're doing to pivot a little bit? One of the things is we're very patient, like in, in Tucson. So what, we, what happened was we shifted when we were looking at properties in Phoenix, we couldn't get the numbers to work in our business model. So we looked at Tucson and we said, man, we could just, these numbers make a lot of sense. So we started buying down there and we purchased 10 properties down there, smallest being 12, uh, largest being 90. However, there was an 80 unit and a 27 unit that were neighbors. And we combined those into a 107 unit building. So the 107 is our largest in Tucson on the sales side. But those, uh, when we shifted down there three years ago, we saw the numbers look really good. But July of 2018, we closed on Pueblo Springs and it was 18 months until we closed on Bellevue Tower. So we had 45 written offers in between accepted offers. So it was really a challenge in, in that sense. The good news is we found a really great deal and it's price per pound. As we go on into this next year, we're, we're probably going to pursue some other markets. There's some challenges with going outside of a couple hour drive, like getting down to Tucson, we could be down there two and a half hours. So it's pretty easy for us to self-manage, not self-manage, but to manage the, manage the managers, if you will. But if we go someplace, if we're in Alabama or Indiana or Tennessee or some other market, there's a, some big changes we'd have to make in our business to partner with boots on the ground there because it'd be difficult to get there on a quick notice. And it's easy for things to get out of hand. I know that because we buy those properties from out-of-state owners. Yep, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the reasons why we love Phoenix and Tucson too. I can drive there, I can be there in an hour flight and it's easy back and forth. And I get asked all the time, why haven't you added another market? If you were to add another market, you know, how would you go about it? So I'll ask you the same thing, you know, adding another market, what does that look like for you since you're basically boots on the ground in your market? I have been visiting with a couple of the brokers and probably the first thing we would, we would do is get with some brokers in that market and we've called directly to the top lead brokers, but you know how hard it is to, to crack a new market or maybe you don't, but it, it was difficult for us at first. Even in Tucson, we, 
people were kind of skeptical. Who are these people from Phoenix? And we just kept pounding the pavements and, and found it, found the deals in many different ways. So we've been talking to brokers in Albuquerque, talking to brokers in, in Las Vegas, um, looking at you know, parts of Texas. But one of the things I found out that if you have a good relationship with a broker here, like let's say somebody from Burcadia, they say, hey, I know a broker in Albuquerque. I'll get you in touch. And that just happened yesterday. We're going to get in touch with a broker out of Albuquerque. The one that I was in touch with, everything we sent is, is like it's been picked over. It's, it's, it's the last one. You know, they, and they're overpriced. They've been on the market a while. And you know they're overpriced. They've been on the market more than uh, a couple of email campaigns, right? Yep. <laughs> I mean, these days, when the brokers send them out, they just don't last. So I like Albuquerque since it's similar size to Tucson, but I think it's got a, a better infrastructure. It's uh, more positioned for growth long-term. So that's just my opinion. There's no advice in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the idea and the, and the, the suggestion as far as using the brokers that you've closed with in the market because they're you know technically tied together. They work for the same brokerages and companies. So there's got to be one degree of separation somewhere there where you can definitely get an introduction. So. And what we found at the brokers, like in Tucson, there's three brokers that really dominate the market down there. There's, there's the 300 unit plus, there's the 150 to 300, and then there's under 150. And each person has their market carved out pretty tight and they do a majority, you know, it might be 60, 70% of the transactions in that, in that space. So it's the same in any market. What you need to do is to crack that, but it comes with relationships. So the best way to do that, I think, is through an introduction, not through a cold call. Yep, absolutely. So earlier you mentioned you're now doing longer buy and holds. Can you talk about moving to that kind of that business strategy versus the quicker 18 to 24 month holds? Yeah, the, the mental transition for me hasn't been easy. You know, I'm addicted to the turns. I'm addicted to the, at first, like the flips. We were, when we were flipping houses. We did that one year, 287 homes in, in, in uh, 2012. That was our biggest year. And we had 30 escrows going on at a time and or 30 projects going on or properties going on at a time. We were fixing, we probably fixed a dozen out of those, out of the couple of thousand homes that we flipped. So I was addicted to that turn. And so I found out that when we're buying and fixing and selling, I found out, hey, there's other ways to feed that passion. One way is to see the transition into stabilization. And I realized I really passionate about the property from the day we buy it until the day it's stabilized. Once we get to that point, I, I kind of lose the interest in, okay, what do we do with it from here as an individual? The, Good news is there's two people on my team, my, my brother, Mark, and my son, Ben, who are very passionate about, hey, how can we hold these properties? How can we create a nest egg? How can we create residual income? And so I said, great, tell you what, I'll bring it to stabilization and, and then YouTube build the plan for how we, how we keep it. And so Pueblo Springs and Bellevue are, are properties we'd like to keep long-term. They're master metered. We have a lot of controls in place. They're very stable. They're strong. They're, they're con- build, buildings that are concrete floors, walls and ceilings. So, I mean, they're really well-built buildings. So, this one that we could, I think, hold for a very long time as far as the construction goes. And then the, where they're located is a pretty decent little hot spot for rentals. And uh, the, the crime is lower there and has been higher, but you can see the transition moving as the properties are getting repositioned. So, mentally, that was not easy for me, but the good news is I got, I got a team behind me who's very passionate about that. And then I feed off of their passion. They get excited, I get excited. So my goal is to bring it to stabilization and Mark and Ben will take it from stabilization to long-term ownership. And we're looking at seven to 10 years. And what's really interesting, Kyle, is somebody says, hey, you don't know, I can't go seven years because I don't know what it's, the market's going to be like. I can only do three. <laughs> I said, you don't know what it is in three years. Either. Right. It's going to shift fast. And this information age that we live in, market shifts are going to be very fast and they're going to be sudden. I, I don't think there's going to be a slow burn off. I mean, it'll be quick, but I don't think we'll have a big crash. There's going to be some some turns, 
So that's why I like to hold them longer term because the other reason is if I sell everything I have, what can I buy? And you had asked that, what, what are we doing as strategies? Door knocking, talking to owners direct, talking to brokers, talking to friends of friends of friends. And, and it's really, you got to be on it all the time to find that little, like we could, people say, you're looking for the diamond in the rough. We're looking for the rough in the diamond. We're looking for the worst property in a, in a stable neighborhood. Yep. Absolutely. Love that. So you and I talked in the past, probably a couple months ago about the issues of affordable housing in many markets across the U.S., not just in the Arizona market. So can you talk to our listeners a little bit about that issue and some of the challenges? Absolutely. The uh, affordable housing has typically been tied to subsidized like Section 8 and other types of uh, subsidized programs. And I've seen the term attainable housing being used now more for the self-paying resident. And our focus, I've mentioned this Our passion is serving the underserved and our focus is is the permanent resident, one who may never own a home, would like to live in one. I think it's important people understand that when our passion is a self-paying resident, those that work in communities, work in the community in retail, construction, and they are lower income, but they do pay their own bills. What what we're finding in Phoenix is anything 900 to 1500 is very difficult to find and then 700 to 1100 in Tucson is very difficult to find because when you're when you're the gentrification is happening and the repositioning, the focus is on A, you know, Metro A certainly, and then A A plus as well as B plus. And you see the development has really been big and you've seen that across Phoenix. It's amazing how much is being built, but yet they're pre-leased and pre-rented or pre-leased. So then what we're seeing is that like I'll use the example if you know Phoenix, there's Roosevelt Row where they they took down all the old buildings, the vacant lots old apartment buildings and they've built some very beautiful high-end metro a properties and it's they're beautiful and it's and it's needed but I've, I've pondered that what's happened to those residents where are they gone where can they go and people that work for you know 12 15 an hour in downtown phoenix are not going to commute from new river or goodyear or you know south gilbert they're, they're going to live nearby and we're going to have, we have a challenge of labor and we have a challenge of residents because the, where do they live? And that is, a, that is, a, that is a, a problem that I believe we're going to need some, some other input tax, different leverage of tax credits, different types of loans, um, different, you know, perhaps some government involvement, but, and not rent controls. I, I believe rent controls are, are the short term, they're a bandaid and they do not fix the problem. Yeah, I agree. All that's going to do is push people further out. And they create slumlording. It really does. It's, and then, We've seen that in markets, the last market, when the market went down, people were renting out for, for really low rents, but they were, the properties were horrific. They're not habitable. And that rent controls will push slumming. And it's, it's, there's no question in my mind if we know that. So we got to find other ways. And one, one way is to take care of the investors. The investors are going to take their money where they, can, where they can make a profit. They have a responsibility to their shareholders to turn a profit, period. You can't work for free and we're not, you can't work for losses. Yep. Any other kind of thoughts on how investors can help, you know, solve some of this problem? The affordability problem is not going away. And it's certainly not just in Phoenix and Tucson, it's nationwide. So, Well, higher density would be, but new construction, it's, it's a puzzle that I don't have the solution for, frankly, because it's new construction is expensive. I look at that building we bought in, in Tucson for $56 a square foot, and you can't build that thing for 165 a foot. Yep. And so how do you build that? So there's got to be ways that there's got to be either tax credits or like, like Phoenix housing. Is there, Phoenix is already starting to sound that, sound that drum that, hey, there's a problem with affordability. So is there some tax credits? Is there some, uh, you know, would, they, would they not charge this, you know, give you tax relief on the sales tax or 
property tax relief or some other income tax relief. You know, if you get like a LIHTC program, the, problem, the challenge with LIHTC is that solves a certain problem, but it doesn't solve what we're looking for. We're looking for self-paying residents, you know, in Phoenix around $900 a month for a two-bedroom that's a decent livable that, that you can afford to buy, fix, and hold, or buy, or you can't afford to build it unless there's some kind of other tax credits in place. I've been developing a little bit of a business plan on that. The challenge is all the stars must be in alignment for that. You have to have everything in place, including a loan that they like got a lower interest loan from a Fannie or Freddie, which you can get uh, with the right programs. But if everything's not in alignment, it's not going to work. So frankly, I don't have the solution yet, but I am pursuing it because I have a passion for that. And I think it's a long-term, it's not something that we're looking through this cycle. It's a permanent solution we need to take care of those. We, we see that in other cities in LA and San Francisco and Seattle, those uh, documentaries about the uh, homelessness problem. And that'll creep into our town if we don't take care of that. Yep, 100%. Uh, Lolita is going to take us into our final four questions. Are you ready? I am ready. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by asset protection attorney, Wayne Patton. We all spend a lot of time thinking about ways to make more money, but how much time have you spent thinking about legal strategies to protect your wealth? Whether you're a professional, an investor, or an entrepreneur, you are at risk of being targeted in a lawsuit. Wayne is an attorney who specializes only in asset protection strategies, like the use of offshore trusts. If you'd like to learn more about how you can protect your assets, visit mwpadden.com or assetprotection.law. Mention this podcast and Wayne will waive his customary $750 initial consultation fee. Again, the website is mwpadden.com or assetprotection.law. Or you can call Wayne at 877-727-1092. Call now and get protected today. What is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? Spreadsheet. You got to have spreadsheets and the numbers have to always work. We have a question here that you know, the first question we ask is what opportunity are you looking to exploit? What is the value creation within that opportunity? And then do the numbers work? And the most important question is, do the numbers work? And it has to do with the spreadsheets. That's the most important tool I, I could never do without. Great. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing and what is the main takeaway for our listeners? Boy, you got an hour? Um, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I'll make it pretty quick. Jack and I were, were flipping houses and then we started flipping land. And this was uh, 2007 and eight, and the market was peaking and it hadn't peaked yet. We sold all of our rentals and said, hey, we're going to get into this land development play out in West Phoenix, out in Peoria. It's a golf course community. We, we tied up that one square mile of land. We worked with the neighboring golf community and it was going to be great. We were going to be like the developers of the century in, in Phoenix. We couldn't wait. Greg Norman was signed on. He had done a preliminary design. He was going to fly out and design this golf course, high-end uh, public-private golf course, and then the market happened. What we did wrong is we had everything we did was on seller carrybacks, and we did um, private investors, and it was a very painful lesson. We lost millions, and I lost you know, everything but my dignity in 2000. And, and we were a little slow. It was probably 2011 when I finally admitted that, hey, this is not going to turn around anytime soon. And we called the, the people we bought the properties from and said, hey, you can have your property back. They took, you know, obviously they got the down payment, but they got the property. So they still own them today because the property wasn't even worth the, the property taxes owed on it at that time. It was just insane. 
I decided at that point that I will no longer do speculative buying. I'll buy conservative and it's got to be a good deal today. It needs to cash flow in today's market and there needs to be a cushion so that the market softens. We're still in a position to withstand that, the down economy. So that is the biggest lesson is for me was to stick with what you know, stick with what you're good at and then learn slowly. Don't try to be too fast because we thought we were, I don't know if we, I can speak for myself that I thought I was going to be some big, big shot developer. Never happened. (laughs) (laughs) That was painful. The good news is, I picked it up and we, that's, that was 2011, 2012, we flipped 287 homes. So I didn't shut it off and go hide in a cave. I said, I'm getting back to work. And that's there the key is to get back to work. That's the biggest lesson. Awesome. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? I need to embrace that there's another generation of people coming and they have different needs and wants than what I had growing up. And when I say a different generations, my own children, my son and my son-in-law work for me, my brother and brother-in-law as well as a few others. So it's a family business. So what I really need to do is read and study and learn. So I've been reading a lot about a book or two a week or about two books a week between reading and um, Audible. And it's been absolutely mind blowing how much you can learn by reading. People are willing to share their life stories. And it's like, it's just amazing. And I've always been a reader, but mostly in fiction until about probably 10 years ago, I started reading a lot of nonfiction. But this last few years has been a book or two a week. And it's really what I'm doing to elevate myself. And finally, where can people find out more about you? Well, we can always go to our website, bakerson.com, but I'm going to throw a challenge out there. I've done this on other podcasts that I've been a guest on is I'm willing to give out my phone number and people can reach me there. And I've got about five people that have reached out. So I'm very willing, unless I get overloaded until then, I'll give out my phone number and it's 520-808-9111. It's 520-808-9111. And my email, bruce at bakerson.com, B-A-K-E-R-S-O-N.com. Wow. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for your time and expertise and for being on our show today, Bruce. Thank you so much for having me. And as I like to say, let's see where this journey takes us. We're looking to attract like-minded individuals to take this journey. Thanks, Bruce. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to aptcapitalgroup.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode.